let us think of what we can do for us and our descendants to survive. Far more needs to be done to keep global warming in check. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. So we are here as a people, demanding rights to be recognized. We as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. The time has come, the walrus said. Perhaps things will become worse and then better. Perhaps there's a small god up in heaven readying herself for us. Another world is not only possible, she's on her way. Maybe many of us won't be here to greet her, but on a quiet day, if I listen very carefully, I can hear her breathing. Today we've got an interview with Sharon Pearson, program coordinator of the Oberlin Project, uh, as well as Oberlin City Council member, concerning things like the City of Oberlin's Climate Action Plan, the topic of resilience, the relationship between the college and the town, and the Nexus Pipeline. In the meantime, some news updates. Cuban revolutionary leader and former president Fidel Castro died last Friday at nine years old. Castro has huge symbolic no meaning for the world as a leader in Cuba's war for liberation from Batista and in general the battle against imperialism and oppression. Many today will be mourning him. However, his legacy remains controversial as his regime was responsible for acts like putting queer people in con concentration camps and imprisoning dissenters. There's a great article by Enrique Guerrero Lopez of the Black Rose Anarchist Collective on Castro that you can check out at blackrosefed.org. Me dirijo a los países pobres para que distribuyan. Basta ya de palabras. In Peru, a state of emergency has been declared in seven districts due to raging wildfires that scientists agree are fueled by climate-induced drought. The fires are threatening indigenous uh, land and crops in the Peruvian Amazon. And in Chiapas, Mexico, starting over a week ago, people from the communities of the northern zone and the jungle, including Chaltal, Totzil, and Chol, began a 10-day march um, to resist mega-projects of the extraction industry, saying, Beginning with an analysis of the current reality, we have decided to begin a mega-pilgrimage to animate and strengthen our defense of Mother Earth, peace, and the dignified lives of indigenous peoples. The friends of Leonard Peltier are urgently calling for solidarity to free Leonard Peltier, American Indian movement activist who was wrongfully convicted and who has been in prison for 40 years for defending his community from two armed members of the FBI who were trespassing on native land. With Donald Trump set to become president on January 20th, uh, there are only 64 days left for Obama to pardon Peltier and see that he's released from prison. Listeners can go to Free Peltier, P-E-L-T-I-E-R, now.org, to find out uh, who to call to release Leonard Peltier, as well as to find his address to write letters of support.
Leonard Peltier is a prisoner of war, a political prisoner, incarcerated for a crime he did not commit by a government that has no intention of ever finding out the reality behind what happened. Because the reality is not something it wants to deal with. It doesn't want to talk about the oppression of indigenous people. It doesn't want to talk about the ritualistic abuses that occurred on reservations all over this country. It doesn't want to discuss the idea of democracy put into practice when it applies to individuals who live on a res or who live in substandard conditions inside a decaying system, inside a conjured democracy. And now we're coming to terms with that reality. Leonard Peltier is a living example of that struggle. And we need to do everything that we can to spread the word and let people know that our struggle, like Leonard Peltier, will not die. We will not allow it to die, not in our hearts, not in our souls, and not in the physical reality that we live in right now. This is Immortal Technique. Viva la Revolucion. Last week, the Army Corps of Engineers informed the tribes at Standing Rock that on December 5th, it will close all lands north of the Cannonball River, where the Ocheti Shakawin uh, encampment is located. The Camp of the Sacred Stone responded, We are a coalition of grassroots groups living and working at the encampments, and we will not be moved. We stand united in defiance of the black snake and are committed to defense of water, our Mother Earth, and our rights as indigenous peoples. We, we call on all people of conscience from all nations to join the encampments and stand with us as we put our bodies on the line. NoDappleArchive.org is a good place to go for resources and coverage of resistance and repression in the next few days. And you can also go to O-C-E-T-I-S-A-K-O-W-I-N-Camp.org. That's O-C-E-T-I-S-A-K-O-W-I-N-Camp.org to donate as well as to find calling lists to demand that the pipeline be stopped and that the militarized violence end. What would you say to people who are thinking about coming but out here to help, but they're on the fence about it? Tell them to come. Fight your warrior spirit and get here. <laughs> in four corners, four directions, four colors, and death rides on four horsemen, a black snake with some black tanks, uh, how much money do these companies need to make, they can drop their product but they wanna save a buck, already extracted billions, when is enough enough, I used to be in the oil fields, getting paid, but I quit, cause oil water I can't drink, look down and see Kamimi La die in the mud, I looked up and told myself that enough's enough Money does not own my soul, living comfortable It's not in my plans, my hands in the sand Some things worth more than gold Some things they can't be sold Some things can't be replaced She is your mother, the fresh water is her veins going on have we all lost our minds every human needs clean water to survive we're sorry your call cannot be called another profound insight i had on this trip is that the earth is our mother and brian that was something i i knew intellectually it was a some hippie concept i'd been exposed to many times oh man the earth is your mother man you know mm. But the earth is our mother. It is literally, the earth is our mother and we are, we are absolutely destroying her. She asked for nothing from us. 
and we are just abusing and wrecking her. And that, that was, became so clear to me, and I, and I understand that so much now. Um, will that change the way you do yes, things? Yes, it will definitely change the way I do things a lot. <laughs> Love is the strongest, this path is the hardest But if we were strong enough to do it, we wouldn't see it Our prayers would not be needed, this movement's very needed Indigenous wisdom unheeded and sacred things depleted I'm Mexicano, Malacota, and I'm white too I'm mixed with everyone, so part of me's just like you Every group of human beings shares the same stars And if the earth is not your mother, are you from Mars? Since 1492, 500 years and counting, surviving the genocide they call colonizing my turtle island. What is a fossil fuel? Continued destruction, nothing new. Living a system, taking our children, shipping the fields till nothing's true. I had that money in front of me, but I left it. Cause oil money's dirty if my mother gets disrespected. We're disconnected, these times are hectic and feeling heavy. But still, we love all living beings and suffer for the many. We are peaceful people, that's why we walk with prayer. And if that wasn't true, we wouldn't be standing here. We're peaceful people. What they show in the media We're kind people, hold your ground Change is coming now And uh, it's, we don't have to compete with anyone anymore Because a rising tide raises all ships, right? I mean, this is, it's not about me, it's about everybody That was Black Snakes, a remix of A Tribe Called, a tribe called the Reds' Powwow Stadium by Prolific the Rapper I'm going to turn now to an interview with Sharon Pearson of the Oberlin Project uh, and current city council member. Stay tuned because Sharon has a lot of interesting insight to offer and important things to say. Uh, however, I'll also note that I don't uh, fully endorse all of the opinions expressed in this interview. Uh, I support Sharon's perspectives, but especially in regards to the Nexus Pipeline, for instance. Um, I believe that more can and should be done by Oberlin's leadership to stop this pipeline and protect residents' lives and our environment. And I believe that we should understand ourselves as powerful enough to resist it with the goal of not just rerouting it to another community in another environment, uh, but to stand up against uh, fracking and extractive industries and to shut it down. Uh, but with that in mind, here is Sharon Pearson. My name is Sharon Pearson. I am the program coordinator for the Oberlin Project. Um, I also wear several other hats as well. Um, I am um, a city council person and I'm in my second term, um, first year of the second term. Uh, so re-election is uh, next year. Uh, also, I am the vice chair of POWER, which is an organization um, working on energy efficiency. POWER stands for Providing Oberlin with Efficiency Responsibly. So um, I think all of those are things that relate in one way or another with regarding climate change. And I, and I guess I would also like to say that I, I am a, uh, I was born and raised here in Oberlin. Um, I always tell people I, was, I played baby Jesus in the Baptist church here, which I did. Um, and uh, went to high school here, went to the vocational school here. So I have either lived or worked in Oberlin my entire life. And can you talk about, um, for those who don't know, what the Oberlin Project is? Yes. And what your work is with it? It's, 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 it can be um, a challenge for people to wrap their heads around this, but the easiest way for me to explain it is Oberlin has a goal of being one of the first communities to reduce carbon emissions below zero. Um, and uh, we want to become a positive climate community. So the Oberlin Project is actually a catalyst organization. We are not an institution. We're not going to be around forever. Um, it could be that we're here in the format that we are for another 
one or two years and then maybe we transform into something else. But our, our job is to, we are a joint venture between the city of Oberlin, Oberlin College and other institutional organizations within the community um, to help consult with them on ways we can achieve our goals by reducing our carbon emissions below zero. Um, now, within that, um, the college and the city have two different kind of goals that they're achieving. Um, the Oberlin College is shooting toward a 2025 goal to reduce carbon emissions on campus, whereas the entire community is looking to do the same thing by 2050. And uh, through our electric portfolio, because the city of Oberlin owns its own electric plant, we are nearly at 50% um, of reducing our carbon emissions within the community. Um, so we're about halfway there, but um, I think the hardest part is still ahead of us. Um, I think the easiest part was changing a couple of things in our portfolio, but um, we have people that are involved and behaviors that need that people where people need education as to what to do in order to create that change in their lives. Um, well, what brought me here was. Um, uh, basically because I was born and raised here in Oberlin, I knew a lot of the community. Um, as I mentioned before, is I think that it's going to take people to really uh, affect that last part of the change. And um, I also know that it takes people who have relationships with people within the community um, in order to affect that change. So um, I was kind of approached saying, hey, Sharon, you're somebody here who was born and raised here. Um, you know a lot of people, you know, you would be a, a great person uh, to be added to this team. Um, you know, is this something that, you know, you would want to, to consider? And I'm a person who loves to be able to help people, to be able to educate people. So because of that, I became very interested in this, in this job. Um, my primary focus has been um, outreach, publicity, public transit, energy efficiency, for instance, I'm also working on Eco Olympics. So all those kind of things that affect people and their behavior is uh, the work that, that I do um, at the Oberlin Project. And um, in my past interactions with um, people from the Oberlin Project and, and what I've read about it, resilience is a word that is utilized a lot in that context. Um, can you talk about what resilience means and uh, what it looks like specifically in the case of Oberlin? Yes, um, resilience means that when there are other things that happen around us, um, it may not necessarily affect us as adversely. For instance, um, if we're able to grow our own food. Um, we don't necessarily have to rely on the food that we get at the grocery store that comes from you know, another, the other part of the United States or another part of the world because we will have that food here locally. Um, it's about local investments, spending our money here locally to help uh, grow and sustain the businesses here within the community. Uh, for instance, one of, I think one of the great programs, even though it's funded by a national organization, is Shop Local, uh, Shop Small Saturday. Um, I think that really is um, part of what we're, we're trying to achieve is how can we begin to help each other locally? How can we reduce our reliance on outside sources so that we're not affected as much um, by anything that may happen nationally? Because that's what's happening to us right now because we're so connected um, to everybody else around the world. When one thing happens to one person, it adversely affects us. And this is not something that um, we don't want to be the only one in Lorain County or Ohio doing this. Um, there's another part that I think that we don't focus on enough, which is also replication. Um, we're kind of like a test site for how do we make this happen, and then how can we um, work with other communities to be able to do the same thing so that they are also resilient. And um, specifically regarding food, what, um, what, what's being done in the Oberlin Project to move toward um, local food and food sovereignty for this community? Well, right now, um, we're working on a food hub um, where we are getting foods from local farmers and uh, supplying that food to local um, 
businesses and organizations. Uh, one of our biggest uh, suppliers here, or who we supply the most, is ASCA, uh, the Oberlin Student what is it, Cooperating Association um, here in Oberlin. Um, uh, I have been working and uh, helping with the invoicing of, uh, of that, so that's why I know that. And we're trying to encourage more and more businesses to be able to do this. The goal is to have a physical um, facility in which we can do this, uh, to be able to, to move food locally from local farmers into our local businesses that supply food, you know, restaurants and things like that. Um, so that, that's, that's what we're doing right now. Um, we hope over the next year to have um, a physical facility where this is happening and supplying food uh, within a, I think it's a six or seven county radius. And putting on your city council hat, um, what are the primary issues facing the um, council at this time, and what are Oberlin, Oberlin's most, um, what do you see as Oberlin's most present needs uh, that need to be addressed? Um, well, what I see right now as a city council person is I think when we take a look and saying that we have until 2050 to achieve our goals, in a way I think we put that off in our mind going, that's so far away, I'll, you know, I, I might not even be here by that time. And I think that that's a mistake um, uh, that is causing um, people to take, some people on council to go, well, this is going to be, you know, it may, it may seem like it's too costly for us to... Uh, work on these sustainable efforts. You know, we need to uh, we need to look more at our money than we than we do at sustainability because our goal is so far down the line. Um, I, I kind of see um, a clash between a new paradigm and the old way of doing things um, on city council, and the reason why there has been somewhat of a struggle. I'm a firm believer that if we have plans and goals in front of us, I think we have them there for a reason, and we need to constantly be working at it. I think when we're looking at our budgets, we need to be looking at our climate action plan and planning for those goals as best we can. Uh, I think our department head should be doing that. I think I think our even our city employees should be educated on what this what this climate action plan thing is, and I don't know if that has necessarily happened. But one of the things I am happy about is we do have a new city manager coming in. In fact, his first day is Monday, December 5th, and um, he was a city manager prior to uh, being in Michigan, in Allegan, Michigan. He was a city manager in Yellow Springs, Ohio, uh, which is also a small college town like Oberlin and progressive like we are. And I think we have a climate action champion um, uh, that is coming on board to really help look at all these issues and to try to find balance. So um, that is um, one of the, the struggles that I think um, I really am putting my hope and faith in this new city manager who's going to take a look because I don't believe that we should force things on people. I think we need to try to find a balance, but we should be cons consistently moving forward toward our climate action goals. Um, I think the closer we get to meeting our goals, the harder it is for us to achieve our goal. In other words, it just, it's just that much harder. Like I said, I think we did the easy part by changing things in our portfolio, but now we have to involve people in the process. We have to educate people on what the Climate Action Plan is about and why we are doing this. We're not doing this because we're... Uh, you know, being so authoritative and saying, me good, you bad, um, and you have to do what I say. We have to take the time to really educate people about what this means and how it's better for their lives in general. Um, some of the things, though, that we, I think um, one of the reasons why the Oberlin Project is here and we have these uh, goals regarding climate action or action, the climate is um, Oberlin, even though it's small, um, we have the same problems as a major metropolitan city. So we have 21% uh, poverty here in Oberlin. Um, we have 53% of those children on free and reduced lunch in the community. Um, we have a lot of older people that live in this community. And so um, I've always found trying to 
touch all these different aspects. You know, we have the college, we have middle income, we have all these dynamics that happen in the community. And trying to educate people where they are um, can be a challenge. Um, I think that there are people who believe in, um, you know, the efforts that the city is making and what the Oberlin Project is doing and, and Oberlin College moving toward these climate action goals. Uh, I think people sometimes find, you know, those who believe in this, the easiest thing is to talk with people who understand. But then we're leaving out the, the, the low income or elderly or other people who don't understand, and then we create this gap. And I don't believe that we can successfully achieve our goals unless we include everyone. So I think we need to look at our language. Um, I also think that we also need to not look at this along party lines either. It shouldn't be Democrats versus Republican versus Libertarian or whatever. Um, we need to be inclusive of everyone, meet them where they are, and help to bring everybody along. I've always believed that wherever our weakest spot is or wherever our, our problem area is, is the area we should focus on because I believe everybody above that will benefit from it. So um, I think our, our, our struggle is really how do we get people involved in this process? How do we educate them? And even though Oberlin is small, that's still a challenge. Yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, um, you were at the Oberlin Candidates Night for City Council um, during that election cycle. And I, I think I remember it was you who was, was talking about um, poverty in Oberlin and how uh, this is a place with a social justice history that prides itself on social justice yet has, as you just said, um, still pretty big issues with poverty and inequality. Yes. So maybe you would say more about that and, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean... And I think it, 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 you can look at it two ways. Um, I think that this environmental movement is scary to people who may be living in poverty. They don't understand it, and so there's an automatic rejection of it in, in one way. Um, on the other hand, like I said, I believe that there are people who believe in this movement, environmentalists, who just believe we have to get this done and almost force everybody just to conform, and that's a conflict. And I think we need to figure out how do we overcome that conflict. I like to stretch the definition of sustainability, and I have a different. There's the textbook version, which is sustainability is about the um, uh, about the balance of economy, environment, and equity. Blah blah blah. Very boring, very vanilla. I like to change that around. Um, I believe that sustainability is the balance of in economy and environment through the lens of social justice. Put social justice first. Um, I don't know if we've always looked at what are the needs of our community. We have we don't have public transit in Lorain County. That's an issue, which I think keeps people in poverty, um, which means they can't get a job or they can't go to training to get a job. We have jobs that are available here uh, where people don't have to go to don't have to go necessarily to college. They can go to Lorain County Community College get a a two-year certificate and come out making as much or more than those who are going to college. But without public transit, you can't do that. Um, what about community benefits? Um, what about all the construction projects, regardless of whether at the college level, school level, city level? How can we create openings right here within the community for people to be able to get those jobs, especially because we don't have public transit? Um, um, those are the kind of things that I guess, you know, I, I'm thinking of that may not be the traditional environmentalist kind of mindset of uh, sustainability or the environment. But um, I think that there are aspects of those things that we need in order to be able to relate to people because people aren't going to be, if people are, are struggling to pay their bills, buy food, pay their electric bill. Last thing they're going to want to do is listen to anything about the environment. And so that's why we have to meet the needs of people first before they're going to be willing to listen. 
and then we can start educating them to bring them along. That takes a lot of work. It's not easy. And so I think that that's, that's a struggle. Um, and what I mean by really being inclusive, and I will say that um, I was very happy at the uh, After Fossil Fuels conference that was held here in October. They really talked about this. I was very happy to hear that they started talking about we have to look outside the traditional environmental sustainable kind of definition and start looking at ways that we include all people in this process, regardless of race, color, economics, and also party line. And that was one of the best things that I heard this year regarding the, the uh, sustainable and environmental movement. Great. Um, obviously, Oberlin isn't the industrial center that Cleveland is. Um, but are there environmental justice issues that concern you either in Oberlin or Lorain County in terms of who is most impacted by um, industrial harms or environmental change or things like that? Well, um, I think one of the biggest issues that is going on right now is this um, nexus pipeline that is coming through. And I will tell you that it's probably one of the um, most stressful environmental justice issues that we have here in Oberlin. The reason being is because um, we have this small town Oberlin, and I think that we're one of the only cities where the pipeline is going through. In fact, it's going right by our fire department, okay, right behind all these houses. Um, and we're a town of 8,000 trying to fight the federal government. And the challenge, it's not that I don't support it, but there's this, uh, there's this issue as a city council person, do we bankrupt the entire city to fight this, this uh, pipeline? Um, you know, it, it's, just a, it's just a really, it's a really big challenge because um, I don't want it to go through here. I, and I know that the city is trying to do right now everything it can to prohibit it from going through. But we're going to reach a point uh, where there may be um, something coming down the pipe from a judge or from FERC that's going to say one way or another whether this pipeline is going to actually be diverted outside of Oberlin or whether it's going to go through Oberlin. And if it goes through Oberlin, the question for city council is, do we bankrupt the city to fight the pipeline? And that is a very, very tough decision for city council because we have a responsibility to the financial health of the city. And I hope it doesn't come down to that because um, I think that that's going to be very bad for the city of Oberlin. Do you see um, other alternatives um, besides um, maybe the kind of uh, responses you're talking about that would be financially draining um, to the city in terms of how to... No. Unfortunately, no, we don't. I think that if this pipeline comes through, this, that, that's, the only, that's the decision that city council is going to have to make. And I will tell you that um, my sense is city council is not going to want to bankrupt the city. Um, it's, it's just a tough decision. It's not a decision, like I said, I hope it's not a decision that we want to make. But, um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to be the case because maybe there are other things that will come about. Um, but I, I'm telling you, I'm dreading every day waiting for that decision to come down to figure out how we're going to deal with this. And I don't understand why we are one of the only city where this pipeline is coming through. And I know some people are saying, well, what's the big deal? We already have all those other gas lines because there are, there are other gas lines that are there. And I, and I think that that's fine and well. We can't do anything about those right now what we need to do is figure out what we're going to do with the one that's coming through right now. 
Yeah, I, I wonder. Um, I have my twin brother is headed to Standing Rock, North Dakota, right now. Um, I wonder what the city councils, um, or maybe the Overland Project um, responses would be to um, people in Overland who. Uh, choose to protest the pipeline or well there I will tell you that one of my fellow city council members came up with a great idea but I don't know if he's working on it and I tried to connect some students to him which is um, is there a way now, now, and the, you know I don't know what the likelihood of this is is there a way to allow for protesting of some such issues whereas the police won't arrest people um, for doing so. Kind of like the sanctuary city in a way for the pipeline. Uh, just allowing that to happen because of our environmental um, standings. And um, that could be an option. You know, I don't know what will happen as a result of that because I think what will happen is because it's a federal thing, it may not be our police but it may be other people who are not within the jurisdiction of the city that still may, you know, get involved with any protesting that happens. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's a sad... <laughs> very sad yeah. Um, we lose you, either way. But have you talked with... Um, I imagine you have with um, residents who... Um, whose properties the pipeline is going Well, I, I haven't talked time. directly with them, um, but I've heard, you know, we, we hear through uh, updates and and people just, uh, you know, we know that there's a lot of people who don't want this to happen. We know that, and that's the reason why the city has hired a, um, a lawyer who used to work for FERC, who knows the ins and outs, who's working with our law director to try to figure out what we can do. We're trying to do... Right now, we're working on everything within our power and our right to get this to stop. So I, you know, I want that message to come through loud and clear that we're not just sitting on our hands doing nothing. We are trying to figure out, you know, is that a wetland area and they shouldn't disturb it? You know, what, what can we do that's within our power so that we can protect the finances of the city, still have a viable city, but use these mechanisms in order to divert this line. Now, I know some people don't want it to go through it at all. They don't want this pipeline at all. That, unfortunately, once it's outside the city, corporation limits of the city of Oberlin, is beyond our control. We can't do anything about that. So that's why we're trying to use everything under the law to divert it. Um. Okay. Before move on, were there other um, environmental justice issues you wanted to talk about? I, I would just say that the, this is not necessarily an, a project that the Overland Project gets involved with. I mean, our goal is to support Overland College and the city of Overland institutional organizations. Um, we, you know, so we're looking at what are the goals and the plans of those organizations. Um, and the pipeline is not one that the Overland Project has the resources in order to put towards. So they, um, um, they're allowing what other entities to get involved in that pipeline issue. I just want to make that clear, too. Okay, great. Um, at this uh, meet, you met with a student group on campus um, a few weeks ago, and you talked about the town's relationship with the college, some of the power dynamics that exist there. I know that's a touchy subject, <laughs> maybe, but um, maybe you could speak on it. Well, um, yes. I will tell you from my experience being born and raised here in Oberlin, and in fact, up until five year, years ago when I started working for the Oberlin Project, I really didn't know much about the college, even though I was here. And so you have to understand, that's kind of the dynamics of a person who was born and raised in the community. They don't know, and so they just see this big entity with all these people that come into town, and uh, there's not really a connection unless you befriend somebody at the college or you, you, you have to kind of be 
you know, or you have kids that go to school and somebody's at the college, you know. So there's this, this separation that happens naturally. Um, but once I started working for the Oberlin Project and really got to know Oberlin College, I was like, oh my God, there's all these things I didn't know and all these things are available to me as a resident that I had no idea. And I still think that there's a ton of things that I don't even know about. And so there is this neg- there's this automatic negativity. Unfortunately, I don't blame the college for this. It's just the way that it is. But because the college is nonprofit and it owns over 40% of property, that's not taxable. Some of it's taxable, I think their housing is, but others aren't. That also creates some animosity that happens within the community. Oberlin has the has the, mo the highest local taxes in, I think, this area. What I mean by local taxes is the income tax and school district tax is really super high. And Unfortunately, people blame the college for that reason. Um, so, all of that kind of creates this animosity. Um, however, sometimes I believe that through diversity comes opportunity. And we've had some challenges that have happened in this community, between the college and the community over the last couple of weeks. But um, I think it's providing an opportunity for students to want to connect with the community, which I think has been a good thing. I mean, I believe me, I feel bad about all the instances that have happened. But I think the good thing is, is that I met with a couple of students from the Student Senate, and uh, we met with the, with the police chief, and they expressed their concerns to him, and he listened. And he's willing to come on campus, he's willing to be present, he's willing to really address these issues, he's willing to go back to his department and really talk about how to make improvements. I think that that's good. I think that that's um, a start for being able to bridge these gaps. And I've heard from a lot of different people who want to have what they're called listening sessions um, in a safe place where students can talk about how they feel being in the community and residents can talk about how they feel about students um, so that there maybe there can become an understanding and that we can grow to becoming one community. In all honesty, I see Oberlin, even though we're a town of 8,200, as almost three different or even four different communities. There's the low income and then there's everybody else and then there's the college and then there's the community. And it's this division that is sad in a way. But I also hear this happens in a lot of communities. It's just that it hurts more because we're known for our progressiveness and our social justice. And you would think that this wouldn't exist in our community, but it does. And honestly, I think the results of the election is highlighting that even more so. And so through that, I think, comes an opportunity for us to come together. And you mentioned a couple just now, but are there other initiatives that are working to address that separation and power imbalance and create connections between the college and the community that you want to talk about? I, well, I know, well, there's, there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm also working with a uh, youth council um, from the high school, and um, some, some of the students have been involved in the past where we can maybe try to bridge this town-gown relationship um, through that, through the youth. Um, uh, also, I know that we have a, what's called a Human Relations Commission, which is kind of a civil rights, human rights commission at uh, the city of Oberlin that um, also is a body that is exists to try to make Oberlin this best as good of a place as we can and, and to reduce the discrimination that we have, which doesn't necessarily have to be based on race. It can just be discrimination for students against the community and community against the students. Um, so they have been talking about uh, this listening session along with Oberlin Business Partners because some of these instances have happened in, with the businesses that um, they've also talked about doing something as well. So there's been a, you know, like I said, I think this is an opportunity. Um, I think we need to start figuring out 
how, what can we do differently so that something like this doesn't, so these things can be reduced. We're always going to have issues, but, you know, the issues over the past couple of weeks have been stressful, especially on the heels of the election. <laughs> and um, what do you think are the possibilities or kind of the end goals of what it could look like to have um, the college be accessible to the community, serve the needs of the community as well as the students, um, and to have kind of a larger, more integrated community um, where everyone's needs and interests are met. Well, you know, one of the things I found very interesting is that I met a student who was a first year who told me that she came to Oberlin because she remembered reading about the Excos and how they were taught by community members. I don't think that that's true. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't even know what Exco was till I started working for the Oberlin Project, and I, I taught one. But uh, I will tell you that going through the interview process was kind of rough. Um, first of all, they said uh, my interview was at 9, so I showed up at 9 in the morning. It was 9 p.m. at night, so there was a kind of language time difference between the community and students. And then when I was in there, because normally if it's a student or faculty, uh, I guess uh, they, they can penalize that person somehow, but me as a community member, they couldn't. And I had the student telling me how much hard work it's going to be and almost chastising me because I was a community member that didn't have any skin in the game. And um, I just found that interesting, a little off-putting, I, I will say. Um, but I think, I think one way is Oberlin residents would know about these Excos, would be maybe invited to even participate in Excos, to teach some of these Excos. Um, I think that that's one way. But um, I also think just bragging about all the, and I know the college does this to some degree, um, about all the free opportunities that are available, um, how we have so many great performances that happen at such a reduced price that you would have to pay three, four, five times as much if you go to Cleveland for almost the same kind of thing. Those are wonderful things. Um, and what I, what I think the community would love to see, and this is a very controversial issue, and I, and I know that, and I know the city would love to see this too, is if there could be a pilot, a payment in lieu of taxes. Um, you know, they do it, I think, over in at Harvard or Yale or something, where that college actually gives <coughs> willingly a percentage of money to the community. I believe that, that that alone would heal a lot of problems. But I also understand the college is under pressure to perform at a certain level and they have certain standards that they have to live up to and so that's part of the reason why it's hard for them to, to do such a thing however I believe we should change the performance measures <laughs> maybe it should be maybe we should be maybe there's a way for Overland College to grade itself on how well it supports the community and if you do that you begin to change what's the priority is. So I've said this for years to Rio groups, to every student group I can think of, and then challenge other colleges to do the same thing. Uh, I think that that's how you can bring about change, but at the same time, I can't fault anybody for necessarily protecting themselves and their turfs. It's just being challenged to change how we measure will make the difference. Now, I uh, don't pretend to consider myself the paragon of education, but due to one, over-harvestation, two, the introduction into a society of alien species, three, islandation, which is the limitation of an organism into a secluded location, four, pollution, and five, the expansion of the human population, there has come to our attention the current development of extinction. Ian, <laughs> 
down the hall. Yesterday I had a dream in which there were no trees. The seas had dried up, swallowed by the thirsty mouths of a million mushroom clouds. I had a dream the earth burned, blackened beneath the glare of a burning sun, stunning in its beauty if one could but look. Instead we cooked beneath a heat so hot it was white, a white so blinding it melted the eyelids of a million weeping children, their eyes now as naked as the earth without an ozone. Without an ozone, the birds don't whistle or sing, they moan, homeless in the devouring heat. I had a dream that ten million blackbirds fell, driven to seek the sweet smell of death, to quench the thirst that Sprite sells so well. I had a dream we privatized the oceans, that Warner Brothers sold tickets to nightly viewings of the moon. I mourn the moon. I dreamt we cleansed the sky of stars, their stellar presences replaced by ads for herbal essences. Now the sky radiated with such luminescences, it seems to us to have more incandescences than the former presences of the moon and stars. I mourn the moon, oh moon, I mourn to wake. I fear to witness these revelations. For eminent, like the sound of helicopters approaching in the distance, blaring sirens herald the end of the world. From the woolly mammoth to the sea cow, we do the do, but do away with the dodo, deaf to the cadence of the grim reaper's beat. And it's sweet, this beat, an insistent drumming, like rain upon city streets, but acidic, it leaks into your brain, so it drains the letters S-D-O-P from your memory, so your feet don't stop, can't stop, won't stop, dancing for meat and drink, this beat makes you eat everything. Yesterday, I had a dream in which a starfish looked at me and said, My brother, your forelimbs outstretch and head remind me of myself. Essentially a quintessence of twins, which means a ten when children learn to draw five-pointed stars with five simple pencil strokes. We invoke the self in universe. With the five elements reflected in my five senses, I wax pensive, but due to missile defensives, nature's version of the Pentagon is more benign than mine. But I guess she's not trying to protect herself from the Afghanistanis, Iraqis, Chinese, Blackies, whatever the fuck. <laughs> we liberals say no blood for oil, forgetting that everything is everything, so whether you leave your light bulbs on all night or join the army to help bush fight, still the neighborhood trees look at the houses they stand besides and say, my brothers. The guns look at the trees and say, my brothers. Endangered eagles look at the guns whose bullets have bitten them and say, my brothers. Blood looks at oil and says, it's sweet, this beat that makes you want to eat everything. Our flag made it first, plunged like a phallus into the flesh of the full moon, a pierced whole note, oh beautiful. America company attend to the weeping, the weeping of the trees, oh willow, the weeping of the land, the weeping of the stars, the weeping of toothless fins, the weeping of the skies, your reflection falling from a million, million, million eyes for whom I mourn the moon. All right.